Hi, everybody. This is Peter Diamandis, and welcome to the next episode of Exponential Wisdom. I'm here with my dear friend, Dan Sullivan. Dan, I would like on this episode talk about something that every entrepreneur cares deeply about, the availability of capital. Mm-hmm. I like to say nothing accelerates innovation like cash, lots of cash, mm-hmm. and more bucks means more Buck Rogers. And you would think that during a pandemic, the velocity of capital would slow, but it didn't. In fact, 2020 was a peak year in a number of different areas. And I want to chat about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do you think about that topic? Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, your specialty is the technological side, and my main interest is the geopolitical side, that there are investors all over the world, and certain areas are not becoming safe places to put capital, and so they flow to areas where they have greater protection, they have greater legal structures, they have greater innovation of new things that you can actually put capital in. So I think it's a shifting thing. And I think America right now, the U.S., is considered a safe bet. It's like Toronto during the 08-09 recession, you know, which was really worldwide. My house here in Toronto increased by 18% because Toronto is just a really great place to park your money that it's going to be safe, you know. So my sense is the U.S. is always, as a country, creating brand new things that would invite people who have spare cash to invest it. Yeah. And you find that yourself because... I mean, I have a venture fund called Bold Capital Partners. Mm-hmm. and Which I'm, I'm a part of. Yes, And we'll talk about SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies in a moment. So every year at Abundance 360, when I open up the first day and I do the proof for living in 2021, whatever the case might be, one of the things I look at is the growth of the global economy and the growth of investments. Because investments, the more venture investing going in, it means the more experiments being done, the more companies being funded the more moonshots being taken. And it's a lead. Like if you have a large amount of investment, that means that just like a baby, you know, nine months later, you're going to be giving birth to all of these new companies. So I'm tracking that. And, you know, I've been reporting every year for the last, how long we've been going, eight years, that capital amount of investment's gone up from the year before. And I expected during the pandemic, it would be different, but it's not. So The Economist, you know, points out that more capital was raised in 2020 amidst the pandemic than any time ever in human history. Mm -hmm. Some of the numbers in 2020, U.S. venture funds invested $156.2 billion in startups, equivalent to $428 million a day. That's insane, right? And the record before then was $136 billion. So it's up $20 billion year over year. Yeah, yeah. I think about this. I think about the notion that we're going to have, if you think about all the problems in the pandemic, reinventing education, reinventing healthcare, reinventing retail. This is where all this money is going. So it's going to fuel a whole new set of new business models in a year or two years. Yeah. I'm of the belief that the virtual conferencing boom that happened, and Zoom was certainly the name that was being used, is largely entrepreneurial. It's not corporate or government, the use of that medium. And the reason I suspect this is that I'm a news junkie and I read the headlines every day and I'm looking for articles that explain, 
you know, things that are happening. There hasn't been one single article, major article, on the fact that Zoom grew from 10 million daily users to 500 million daily users in 12 months' time. That's 50 times growth. Mm. This isn't a public corporation phenomenon. It's not a government phenomenon or anything. This is an entrepreneurial. I would say that a lot of those users are in new businesses that got created precisely because there was an opportunity opened by COVID where you didn't have to travel to do deals. You weren't confined to local or regional. We suddenly went global. We went global in a way that we could not see we would ever do doing our old way of in-person workshops. It just wasn't feasible. Travel, yep. and difficulty of travel. I mean, that's big for us, but it shows you. So since 1989, we had 26 Australians sign up for our strategic coach. 31 years, we had 26. Since last September, we have 31. <laughs> and Australia is suddenly a big market for us where yeah. it was inconceivable. And 29 countries, we have roughly 150 new clients from 29 countries. Podcasts, people listen to exponential wisdom. People say, we've been listening to you for years, but, you know, the travel wasn't feasible, you know. So my sense is that it's really hurt the travel-dependent businesses. There's no yes. question. But turn it around the other way. Who benefits from not having to travel? You know, that's really where the opportunity is. Yep, absolutely. Let's talk about a phenomenon which has gone insane, and it's extraordinary in its impact. And it's the idea of a SPAC. And, you know, full disclosure, I'm on the board of five SPACs, and three of my companies are de-SPACing, which is the term. And I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen the speed of capital moving this fast. And let me explain what a SPAC is first for folks, because it's important to understand. So traditionally, if you're looking for capital, you have revenues, maybe even a profits, and you want to go public, you're going to do an IPO. You're going to pay enough accountants and lawyers and file with the SEC and go on a roadshow and present your company. And it's a long process. And at the end of that, you are listed on an exchange. Could be in Toronto, could be NASDAQ, New York Times, the Shanghai Star, whatever it is. And your shares are put up and you all of a sudden get a valuation set by the marketplace, by the public. It's a pretty long process. And going public was always something you did when you reached this level of maturity where your revenues were predictable, you had a profitability and so forth. So what has happened over the last 18 months is a phenomenon called SPACs, again, special purpose acquisition companies, in which a group of individuals will file with the Securities and Exchange Commission. I don't know the equivalencies outside the US, but in the US, and you will say, we're gonna go and raise, the typical numbers are between 100 million and 400 million, but some SPACs are 50 million and some are 4 billion let's say 100 to 400 million, and you'll raise that money as a blank check company. You'll raise the money from the marketplace and you'll have this money in trust. And then you're given two years to go and find an operating company to merge with. And so you're a public shell with $400 million in the bank. You have a two-year clock to find somebody who actually is a business, actually generating revenues, actually generating a profit with which to go and merge. And if you find that, 
you set a agreed upon valuation. First, you sign a letter of intent, then you sign a definitive agreement. Mm -hmm. And then some 60 days later, it's not called going public. It's called despacking. The companies merge and you now trade under a new name of the operating company. And it's very fast. What we're seeing is, I think the number is like 500 SPACs have come in. In fact, there is so many overloads in the SEC for what's called an S4 that the response times have tripled and quadrupled because there's that many people raising SPACs. But if you're a company, like one of a company I'm an advisor and investor in, you know, they're doing $50 million of revenue. Next year, they'll do 150. They were looking at doing a series D offering mm -hmm. to get growth capital. They were looking at like $100 million of growth capital. And all of a sudden, they're being approached by all of these SPACs and saying, hey, instead of that, I can give you 400 million and you'll be public. And so there is, it's kind of crazy out there, but it's pouring capital fuel on the fire. And so a lot of these companies are going to be able to move much faster, much further than ever before. So when I talk about the speed of innovation accelerating, when we talk about this at Abundance 360 and such, this is one of the phenomenon more computational power, more AI, and a hell of a lot more capital. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like adolescent growth. Spurts. Growth booster. Yeah. You know, you get to go from adolescence to adulthood. One thing that I am aware of, because I have a significant number of people in various aspects of the financial industry, it's a serious worry. And that is, in the space of about 20 years, the number of publicly traded corporations has been cut in half. And so there's fewer and fewer opportunities for people to actually invest because it's getting very restricted. And it's basically moved publicly traded corporations to be available mostly just to institutional investors, not to private investors. But just what you said is that the complexities of IPO, the complexities of IPO, and then just the sheer complexities of having a public corporation with your quarterly, that there wasn't enough flexibility in the economy for the money that wanted to grow something. You know, not to be safe money, they wanted to actually grow. And I think that it's a response that a large number of people just said, we need a new vehicle here. And I think that's really what happened. My sense is, Peter, and because I'm not technologically centric, you know, because of my program, I'm teamwork centric. I have a feeling that there's a transformation of mood and there's a transformation of aspiration that actually drives technology as much as technology does it the other way. And my sense is that there's just people who would like someplace to put money to have it grow and there wasn't enough opportunity. Well, this democratizes access, right? So one of my companies that we've talked about in the past, Cellularity, which is an amazing company that is the world's largest placenta bank. And the company is producing natural killer cell treatments for cancers, various cancers and stem cells and CAR and K and CAR T cells, which are buzzwords, but it's basically using the cells out of a placenta, which protects the child and the fetus from any injuries from the mother. And it had been growing well under leadership of Dr. Bob Harari. And, you know, the check size for getting involved was like, you know, five, 10, $20 million, $100 million. And the company has signed a definitive agreement with a SPAC, GX, GX. 
is going to go public. And all of a sudden now the public can participate at whatever level they want. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's really is a democratizing opportunity to take companies that have great growth and make them available to the public a lot sooner. Because before you'd have to either be a family office or a large venture fund to participate. Yeah. And the thing is that I've just, you know, sort of as an observer and, you know, a quick start. So I like to have a few facts that go a long way with me. Uh But one of the things is that there's dispute is America the most inventive country? Is America the most innovative country? Is our scientific research? There's all this discussions. And I said, well, that's not the main game. The main game is that in the United States, it's faster to get a new idea to the market than any other place on the planet. It has to do with the capital markets. The capital markets can suddenly just focus a great deal, and it's not government-controlled or anything. This is within the free market system. That If you can give a promise of something that's really going to take off and really grow, the capital markets will be there to support you. And this is a new vehicle for the capital markets to really fine-tune things that really, really are going to take off. And you have to have proof of existence before you even invest here with the SPAC. You know, it has to be an operating company. It has to be making money and everything. Yeah, you still have to have the accounting in place and the legal in place and a CFO and a CEO. And a lot of companies are not going to be SPAC ready. And I say to the entrepreneur, if you're looking at SPACs, number one, do you want to be a public company CEO? It's very different from being a private. Do you have predictable revenues? Can you make use of all the capital? Do you have your audits in place? Because that catches a lot of companies and you really have a good legal team in place. If you do, then SPACs will be a faster means for a larger chunk of money. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Peter, just a personal question. Yeah. A problem you were having before SPACs came along and this was a solution to you. I mean, just from your standpoint, because I know you invest continually, and you really do your homework on these things. But what was not capable for you, but now that you have this back, you are capable? Sure. There's two things. One is on the investor side, quicker exits. So what might be a company that would go through a C-stage investment or D-stage investment and keep going can now exit quicker. So that's exciting for both the company founders and for the investors The second is large chunks of capital, where if you've got something that's operating, and I've seen this, a number of companies that have a capability just created, and they're beginning to get revenues, and they have a vision of where they can go, but normally that vision would require them to raise 20 million, and then 50 million, another 50 million. You can get a chunk of $400 million, and then that will last you for multiple years to get through that vision. Now, the challenge is going to be, do we have a lot of companies that fail? Mm-hmm. Like one of the big SPACs last year was a company I know very well, Virgin Galactic, that came out of the original Ansari X Prize under Richard Branson. And it went public for like three or $4 billion and grew to $11 billion, but they've never flown a single passenger yet. I know. So amazing. And we're going to get into a hype cycle now. Since then, the stock has fallen in price when a few flights were delayed. But there are going to be SPACs, companies that de-SPAC and fail. And they're going to be in the SPAC world. They're going to be 
if there is a paucity of operating companies, good operating companies, the prices of those companies may get bid up. So there's going to be some interesting dynamics over the next couple of years here. Well, here's the thing, Peter, in your world, and for you personally, failure means something different than it does to the ordinary person. (laughs) It means What I mean by this, so one of the things I've kept track of because I've been, you know, kind of interested in the microchip and microtechnology since 1973, you know, there's Silicon Valley and then people say, well, this is the next Silicon Valley. You know, it's some other part of the country. It's another country and Silicon Valley. And I said, no, no, it's not the next Silicon Valley. And I'll give you two instances. I've gone bankrupt twice in Canada, and it's five years before you get your credit card back. It's five years. Hmm. In the United States, you go bankrupt on Monday, and you get your first credit card on Friday. (laughs) (laughs) Because they've run the numbers, and they're betting on averages that probably, you know, looking at everything else, probably you're a safe bet. But the other thing is that in Silicon Valley, if you go bankrupt with your first venture and you're back again, that's like a doctoral diploma. Especially if you learn something. They said he's not going to make the same stupid mistakes he made the first time, you know. It's called experience. Yeah. And in Canada, you know, you can freeze to death up here. That's the first concern, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the whole attitude toward risk and failure and everything, it's just radically different. You know, it's just a radically different. And people don't take that into account. Where are people rewarded for taking risks and failing? I mean, in the long run, not in the short run. So let's talk about the third part of this financial velocity triangle here, which is the cryptocurrency world. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you've been tracking Bitcoin. Yep, I have. But today, let me see where, you know, on the day that we're recording this. The one you gave me is in a shoebox somewhere. I I hope it is. I just can't find it, you know. I'm proud that I gave it to you. So the Bitcoin price today is 56,800 bucks. And when I first talked about Bitcoin on the stage of Abundance 360, I gave Bitcoin out to everybody on, you know, because I was part of the deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it was a couple hundred bucks back then. And that Bitcoin would be worth $56,000 today, more than yep. covered your investment in A360. But what's insane is that the Bitcoin or the cryptocurrency marketplace is worth over a trillion dollars. I've written about this and I'm studying it. And I've started to move a lot of my assets personally from cash into Bitcoin, actually into GBCT, which is a Bitcoin tracking stock if you would, on the NASDAQ. The concept, and we'll not talk about Ethereum or the other cryptocurrencies, but on Bitcoin, one of my college fraternity housemates, Mike Saylor, is the CEO of MicroStrategies, and they basically have moved all of their cash of their company into Bitcoin. Well, Mike was on the stage about three years ago, I think. Uh, It was a different Mike. Oh. That was a different Mike. Mike Saylor is of MicroStrategies. And then the other Mike you're thinking about is Galaxy the Galaxy Fund, and they put huge investments. But then you saw Elon Musk with SpaceX, I think they put a billion and a half dollars of their balance sheet into Bitcoin. And what we're seeing is companies, it's gone from individuals to companies to now financial institutions. Square allows you to trade in and out in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And Mike Taylor's point is a absolute hedge mm-hmm. against the fact that the governments of the world are printing money left and right. Mm-hmm. and devaluing it. Yeah, You know, the U.S. during the pandemic and post-pandemic, you just can't be like just printing trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars without having any kind of an impact, right? 
Well, it's different from one country to the next. The only question is, is there someone who can call the loan? You know, one of our strategies, it's a strategy we realized that we were using before it was effective, is that I've always kept around 85% of my revenues in U.S. dollars and 85% of my expenses in Canadian dollars. (laughs) And I've had a 26% average premium for 32 years. There are different strategies with that. And traditionally, precious metals were the hedge that people would use, gold, silver, and everything else. But it never attracted the kind of organization and the kind of strategy that Bitcoin has. And again, why does it exist? Because it's needed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, things don't come into existence unless they're satisfying some fundamental need. Things are really shifting geopolitically. You know, I mean, this is the biggest shift since 1945 that we've gone in the world. You know, Peter Zion, who is really a very, very bright, not a geopolitician, but an expert on geopolitics. And he said, you know, he says 60% of the countries in the world, and he says there's 200 officially recognized, he said the best economic year they ever had and probably will have over the next 30 years was 2019. They won't see a better year in the next 30 years. And the reason is because it was based on unlimited world trade that was protected by the U.S. military, and that isn't going to be there anymore. Mm. You know, So my sense is that there's these enormous shifts going on in the world the U.S.'s biggest trading partner, everybody says, well, China's the biggest trading partner. I said, they aren't the biggest. Mexico is the biggest trading partner. So enormous shift of jobs. And your friend from Amazon who's going, he understands yeah. that the U.S. is going to industrialize and the high-level, high-skill, high-technology manufacturing <clears throat> is going to be in the United States and the low-labor is going to be in Mexico. And Mexico is the new Southeast Asia for the United States. And then low labor will become 3D printing and robotics and and digitized in that regard. Do you own any cryptocurrency yet? No, no, no. We own uh, Toronto residential real estate. (laughs) Our company's been very profitable real estate. And my biggest one, and, you know, we chatted about this was, which you almost cannot get anymore is cash value life insurance. And it's been 7% compounded for 35 years, you know, and it's, that's you know, a lot. The rule of seven. So that's, you know, five every four. 10 years you're doubling. Yeah. 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 People have different risk profiles. They have different aspirations. But I do think if you, you know, at the end of the day, as the world is printing capital and we're in almost a deflationary world as a result of that, unique assets are going to be like top real estate, you know, Mm -hmm. on Central Park or on uh, maybe not New York anymore, but, you know, in the Mississippi River, actually, (laughs) is viable. But Bitcoin is interesting. The biggest risk to Bitcoin is going to be if a large government goes after it to try and squash it. And if Bitcoin becomes a threat to the US dollar, I mean, some other issues and concerns are, will quantum computing enable us to break the encryption of the blockchain? And a lot of people say that is not going to happen. And there's quantum encryption that you can use instead. And it's a decade or two away. But in the meantime, you know, it's interesting, a friend of mine, Tim Draper, I just watched a documentary on Silk Road that's out. 
it's fascinating, right? So Silk Road between 2011, 2013, 2014 was a place that you could buy anything, in, in particular drugs, and you would pay anonymously in Bitcoin. And so there were 30,000 Bitcoins that were captured when the U.S. government took Silk Road down. And those 30,000 Bitcoins were put out for bid. And Tim Draper won all 30,000 of them. I think he paid like three, 400 bucks each. And there were 50,000 each now. Now there were 50,000 each. So he's sitting on like, he's sitting on all of it. Yeah. Like 1.3, $1.4 billion. And, and he's predicting Bitcoin will go up to $250,000. Well, there's a fixed number of them. So yeah, limited supply, harder to make. It's got the aspects of land that's always increasingly valuable. You know, it's always going up, up, up in value. Yeah. It's really, really interesting. You know, I mean, I just find that what's happened to us as a company and what's happened to, I would say, roughly about 2,000 of our entrepreneurs over the last year in terms of, I'm going to say that the law of gravity that relates to travel has been eliminated from people's future thinking. You know, you always factored travel into your future plans, you know. Yes. And a lot of people, their retirement plans, you know, I just can't take those trips anymore. What it does to your whole sense of your business future, your personal future, when travel is never factored in anymore. It's like, you know, did you, when you were a kid, have dreams of flying that you could fly? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I found everybody I've talked to, and they're really pleasant dreams. And I said, yeah. you know, if it actually happened, and for an hour a day you could float, it would rewire every single thought in your brain and your whole notion of reality, providing you knew when the hour was up. <laughs> and I said, our brains just got rewired over the last year because we always factored in travel as a given for everything. When I first met you, travel was more than a given for you. It was a major part of your life. It was, you know, two or three trips a week. I was living on an airplane. Yeah, and that's been factored out. That's been factored out. You know, and people said, well, you know, it's not like in person. I said, it is so far superior to in person <laughs> that you can't believe it. I said, the things you can do with this technology, you could never do in person. So we're talking about, I mean, we've got our complete plan, you know, when people have freedom to choose. I said, we're going to respond to their requests, but there's things that we've introduced that'll never go away. And we could never have introduced these if the last year had happened. You know, I'm glad I had my 10 years of 60 education before this happened. <laughs> Let me take this home for folks in the following way. The speed at which things are accelerating is itself accelerating. So we're seeing massive growth in computation and everything sitting on top of computation from 3D printing and manufacturing to biology. We're seeing more time come back to us because we're not traveling, because I can zoom to Toronto and zoom to Telluride and Zoom to DC, New York, and so forth. So time is coming back, which gives you more ability to do things. And there's more capital than ever before flowing at faster rates. So it's literally when the speed of our lives is growing in some exponential way, because you have more time and more capital. And what you can do with that additional time and capital is now 10 or 100 times more than what you could have done with it yep. a few years ago. Yeah. 
if you got the right mindset. If you've got the right mindset, an exponential and abundance, you know, a yep. moonshot yeah. mindset. I, I've just seen it so starkly that if you don't have the mindset for this, this is a bad year. Yeah. Yeah. My next coaching session for my Abundance 360 members is on moonshots and I'm prepping for it right now just to help people really understand how do you build a moonshot culture? How do you pick your own moonshots and how do you implement your moonshots? Because you can. And if you can, why wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, this was fun, Dan. Crazy, crazy capital markets. Um, Tracking it, using it, investing in it. And a lot of the people that you coach are thriving from this as well. They're having a great year, yeah. One thing, what if everything you think is crazy is going to be normal and everything you think is normal is going to be crazy? So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, you remember this year when I opened A360, it was looking back at the year 1920, where there were six great innovations in the year 1920, the garage door, the manual garage door, the automotive headrest, The lie detector, you know. There were some big things. I'm reading two books by a man by the name of Tim Wu. Have you ever come across him before? Not yet. He wrote one which is called The Merchants of Attention, how the capturing of attention and selling attention became a huge industry over the last 150 years. And the other one is called The Master Switch, and it's the tendency for any communications technology that suddenly spreads and it's very independent and everything to monopolize over a period. There's capital markets that want one person in charge of all the action. And I'm just in the section on the movie industry, which you're a mile from, you know, where it actually happened. And just the sheer consolidation of technology and, you know, distribution that happened. And that was exponential. I mean, that that was a totally exponential industry, you know, and it's fascinating. But this whole thing in the U.S., the U.S. likes big. It does. It does. You know, there's a rule that if the U.S. economy is in good shape, if every year 20 more companies become billion-dollar companies. Yep. Are you defining it from actual Sales or unicorns by valuation? Revenues, 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 actual revenues. Yeah. They weren't, and this year they are. The U.S. is growing at around 3% when they have 20 companies that have 3% is big if you're a $24 trillion economy. Yeah. Yeah. And soon we'll be measuring it in terms of a couple of trillion dollar companies coming online every year. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Well, as always, Dan. Uh, enjoy our conversations. And we'll continue a long standing between is there privacy or is there not privacy? So we'll have that discussion as we go down the road. Yeah, that is a fundamental. Is there the expectancy of privacy? Do you expect privacy? Yeah. If there is or isn't almost immaterial, do you expect it or not? Anyway, that's Or do you have the capability to actually have it? Actually have it. Yeah. Yeah. A yeah. fascinating conversation topic we should definitely have. You know how I protect my privacy? How's that? I don't talk to anyone else. <laughs> uh, all right, pal. Let me just mention for anybody interested in Abundance 360, I coach 360 entrepreneurs and leaders every year. We spend four days together in January, virtually and in physical presence. And then we meet five or six times during the year virtually. And we cover all of these topics, exponential technologies, 
what's happened in the last year, what's happening in the next two or three years, how you can use it, an abundance mindset, deep dive into longevity. How do you add 10, 20, 30 healthy years on your life? If that's you and you'd like to uh, apply to join, it's not for everybody. One out of 10 people come in. It's www.a360.com, abundance360.com. Dan? Yes, and we have a complete growth plan for entrepreneurs to achieve their own self-managing companies and self-multiplying companies with the entrepreneur just focused on what they do best and what they love and then have a complete personal life that makes all your success worthwhile. That's at strategicoach.com and one of our membership advisors will chat with you about it. Good. Yeah. All, right. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye. See you, Dan.